Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Robin Singley. He is the founder of SmartQ. Today, we're going to be looking at the reality of fundraising. Is it worth it? Who should you raise funds with? How can you tell the difference between good money and bad money? What choices can you make? Do you have to be a unicorn? There's no mandate to do that. In fact, there's very good money to be made in building $100 million businesses and doing that repeatedly without the pressure of trying to be a unicorn. So today, I'd like to welcome Robin Singby. Welcome. Hey, Marcus. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Robin, would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your own journey as a founder? Because it's an interesting uh, history. So I have a traditional background, right? I got a computer science degree from India and moved to the US to get my MBA. And post that, I spent about 10 plus years with startups of various sizes, all in the B2B SaaS space. And we sold to enterprise clients. And my role across these companies really was at the intersection of sales and product. So I was a solutions consultant, I was a solutions architect. And as part of that role, my team and I were responsible for a lot of sales training, right? Which nowadays has transformed into the buzzy term of sales enablement, right? Back then it was just sales training. But even back then, it was very funny to watch as a lot of these really, really smart sales reps really struggled to do justice to the products that we were trying to sell. They were either doing very vanilla, very cookie cutter, one size fits all demos and pitches. And my team and I were appalling. We were we tried to implement a number of different solutions, whether it is LMS solutions or product walkthrough solutions, with the goal of helping sales teams sort of deliver better quality, more personalized product demos. But it just refused to happen. And uh, I remember during one of these training sessions, I had one of, the, one of the big aha moments for me when one of the reps, I remember cle- clearly, she sort of came up to me and said, hey, Robin, you know, all of these efficiency tools and processes that you're trying to implement uh, are really only helping my bosses. You know, they're not helping me because they're, they're forcing me to change my way of working and like adding a lot of friction to my workflow. For me, you know, light bulbs definitely went went off at that point in time, and that, and then uh, I think the second thing, second thing that 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 happened was fast forward to 2020. We had the pandemic hit, and now virtual selling was mainstream, right? And a side effect of virtual selling was that reps could no longer just wine and dine and schmooze their prospects towards a deal. They had a very short 30 minute impersonal cold Zoom call to convince their prospects that their solution or product is the right solution for them. Because of which now, you know, people had nowhere to, sales teams had nowhere to hide. The product had to shine and product demos now became an even more critical piece in the sales process, right? So that essentially was the perfect storm for me to try and solve this problem of how do we create or enable revenue teams, sales and marketing, to deliver personalized product demos that are relevant to your buyers and to your prospects, right? And that that kind of led to uh, me starting up with SmartQ. Okay. So what was the journey that you went through in terms of the ups and downs in the early stages of the business? And how did you manage to make it through that heavy experimental stage without any of those experiments ending up being fatal? Yeah, I'll be honest. And I think I had a, I've had a pretty great journey, all things considered. And when I, when I now talk to other founders who've been through the journey, I was like, oh, wow, isn't all that bad? And people have had a lot, lot worse, right? But I think the thing that didn't necessarily work in my favor was I was a solo founder. So all of the highs and lows were so much more acute. And I had to deal with all of them myself, right? And try and figure things out. So, you know, when I started, I started SmartQ right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. Not great timing at all, anyways. Strongest um, businesses normally started in recession, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's what I've learned, right? In hindsight, 
it seems like such a great decision that all of these great businesses, they started in times of duress. But when you're in the thick of things, you're like, oh my God, I mean, why did I even what do have I done? Myself, right? Uh, but so, so I did that. And so all of my conversations with my prospects, even before I started to build the product, all of my conversations with potential employees, with potential investors was all over Zoom, right? I had, I used to pride myself on sitting in a room, reading the room, building a relationship with people, and then kind of, you know, taking that conversation to its logical conclusion. But with Zoom calls, it, it is so hard to do that. I remember speaking to a prospect and, you know, just like both of us are wearing glasses, like I had this dreaded moment when I saw the color in that person's glasses change. And I was like, oh shit, that person has, has totally checked out and is doing something else. Not interested at all in what I'm saying. But anyways, I, I digress, right? So, so there, were, there, there were a lot of conversations that I tried to have before I even started to build. And you know, it seemed like the problem was apparent. And I think the one thing that a lot of founders have is founders bias, right? You ask questions, you ask leading questions. And that leads to answers that just reaffirm your bias, but don't necessarily tell you if the problem that you're trying to solve is a real problem. And if that person will actually pay for it, if you went to them and, and said that, hey, I built this, please the, pay for the, it. The rule is go looking for bad news. If you're a yeah. founder and you're not running towards the sound of bad news, it's going to come and bite you in the ass later. That's a great way to put it. Exactly right. And I'm also a first-time founder. So if you're starting to put the recipe together, it's not a great recipe, right? It's like solo founder, first-time founder, like check, check, check. So like, you know, investors sort of looking through this, they're like, oh, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Like, you know, all the things that, that a lot of investors would just uh, consider red flags, right? I had all of those, by the way. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I did that for, a long, for the longest time. I had, a, I had a very, very, very tough and long road to finding, you know, a CTO. Lots of people who I spoke with, you know, it was pretty much like a revolving door uh, at SmartQ with people coming in and going out. A virtual revolving door because <laughs> we, we didn't have an office. And even these conversations, these people who came in, I never met them in person. It was all, all over Zoom. So that was a big challenge, right? So it always seemed like I was taking a step ahead and then six steps behind. But lo and behold, like, over the course of a year and a couple of months, I ended up, I, I had a great product. And then we started to go to market. We got a few customers even. But again, like this is another learning for me as a founder, as a first time founder, is that just having revenue is not the only indicator of you being onto something or, or getting to product market fit. It has to be the right revenue from the right customer. And we realized that that was not the case with us when we first started out. So people understand yeah. the importance of this. Yeah. What happens when you take on the wrong customers? Yeah. So the first thing that happens is that you get incredibly busy, incredibly fast because you're trying to build all of these things. You're trying to support all of these customers for the spread of problems that they have. And what you're not doing is actually solving for a very specific problem that can be replicated across a big group of customers of a similar nature. You've solved 100 different problems, but there's exactly five people in the entire world who have those set of problems. So you limited your tab, so to speak, right? Your total addressable market. But the initial few months, you're very happy. You're like super busy. You don't have time to think about anything else. You're like, oh my God, you know, I have, have $20,000 worth of uh, contracts here to fulfill. But soon enough, if you are, are self-aware, which I want to reckon a lot of founders are, like, or they get to that stage sooner rather than later, it, hopefully. It, it eventually. Uh, if, if yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you realize that what you've turned into is really a services business. It's not what you want to do. So we experienced that without a doubt, right? And then I had a good group of advisors who would challenge me, who would question me, who would uh, help reset my sort of thinking. And eventually, a few months ago now, um, we decided that, okay, we need to pivot 
to being able to solve this very problem. And I mean, we want to solve a very specific problem for which we would have to pivot. And again, not a, not an easy decision for anybody, leave alone first-time founders, because that means you are now questioning the very core of why you started out, right? Very hard to do, but I think extremely important. What was the trigger? I, I know that wasn't the the reason that you did it, but I'm just curious to work backwards from the trigger to try and understand how you got to the point where you realized, shit, we've got to yeah. do something or we're really in trouble and we've got to yeah. let go of our attachment. Because mm. attachment is one of the killers. Yeah. Attachment, ego, denial, ignorance. These are the things that hold businesses back. And the reason businesses, small businesses stay small is yeah. the founders keep them that way. For me, there were there were three, I think, critical points that led to this decision to, to pivot. One was that I was having a lot of conversations. My pipeline looked incredibly sexy. That, oh my God, you have all of these people in your pipeline. But they were not closing for a number of different reasons, right? The second thing was that I had, I had a very small set of customers and we were, we were doing a lot for them. But what we realized was that this customer's ACV is not going to go up next year for the, for the amount of work that we're putting in for them. And we cannot take what we've done for them to other potential customers, right? And then I think finally, and I think this, this is the most critical reason for us to pivot, was that we were solving a problem which exists in the sales motion, but it was extremely hard for both smart you and me and my customer to prove that hey because of using smart you for this part of my sales process it has impacted my close rates when you're selling to revenue operations like or revenue functions like sales and marketing that really is the north star right that okay are you helping me how are you impacting my revenue and that became extremely difficult it was vague and it was uh, very roundabout to try and prove that. And what that told me is that even if I somehow managed to get this customer through the door and using SmartQ, the odds of them churning out next year is going to be significantly higher because there isn't a clear correlation between using SmartQ and improvement in your revenue, right? So, so for us, those were the three very critical factors that were like, okay, we need to figure out how do we solve a problem that is, you know, really black and white? Exactly. You know, and, and the value is black and white, right? That because you did X with SmartQ, it resulted into Y on your bottom line or your revenue numbers. That's really interesting. One, one of my old friends, uh, sadly, he died about a decade ago, Jerry Lemberg. He said that uh, most entrepreneurs are people who produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And he was right in many cases, but I think that they're almost there, but they fall foul. And I think it was Richard Feynman or Einstein said that if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it. And I think that there's this disease of uh, simplexity where as you start to simplify as a founder, because you've, you know your subject so well, then you start to simplify and it becomes more and more burdensome and complicated. I've been going through this process the last four months trying to narrow my proposition down, just as you're describing. So this is very timely for me. So uh, thanks for the <laughs> Sure. We all go through this. The, the, the challenge is when you are close to it, it's difficult to uh, detach yourself. And attachment to the outcome, attachment to being perceived in a particular way, attachment to recognition, mm -hmm. any of these things, attachment, the Buddha was bloody right. Attachment is the root of all misery. In sales or in management or leadership, it's the kiss of death. It just raises your stress levels. It makes you fixate on the wrong things, and it causes you to make really bad decisions. Because when yes. your stress spikes and your cortisol level goes up, your adrenaline level goes up, your prefrontal cortex switches off. That's mm -hmm. where rational thought goes on. And your monkey brain takes over, or worse, your reptile. 
Um, so yeah. it's all about defensive. It's about short term. It's about get out of the fix. Yeah. That's not where you do your best thinking. So yeah. one thing I did notice about your story was the depth of understanding of the problem that you had to go through before you even put any developer's fingers to occur to a keyboard. What would you advise founders on that before, whether they're going for funding or not, about thinking time and reflection and spending time speaking to actual customers? Yeah, I, I think that is the number one thing that you have to do, right? Even before you even think of how am I going to sell it? Who am I going to sell it to? How am I going to price it? What are going to be my, be my tiers? None of that really matters. Like what I would advise is, if you have a problem that you're hoping to solve and you're like, okay, I think I solved this problem for this persona, right? Find, start with 20 people. Find 20 people and not, not folks who you know, not your friends, not folks who are even remotely biased towards you. Go onto LinkedIn, search for that particular keyword or that, that perhaps uh, job role, look at 20 people who fit that persona, send them a very cold email that says, hey, I'm looking to solve a problem in this space. Before I go ahead and try and solve it, I am trying to have a conversation with people in this space to see if this is really a problem. Not trying to sell anything, promise, regards Robin. That is pretty much how, what I did to sort of, you know, reach out to people and validate my assumptions. And this is the second time around I'm talking about. The first time around, it was like, you know, it was, you know, I had that I may have spoken to people, but I did realize that I spoke to people with a bias towards me. So speaking to people without a doubt is absolutely the number one thing that you should do as a founder. The second thing you should do is that even if you think that, okay, you've validated the problem a little bit in these 20 conversations, now draw something on the back of a napkin, perhaps. Or if you have a little bit of design chops, you know, go use Figma or whatever and just make a pretty looking proto prototype, right? Spin that up in a week, perhaps, not longer than that. Like spend a couple hundred dollars, but nothing more than that. Take that to 20 new people. So now you validated the problem. So you start to craft your narrative around it. You have a visual aid to further reinforce what you're trying to do and then have those 20 conversations again. 40 conversations. Now, perhaps, you know, if, if you're really lucky, you validated it. You're like, okay, yes, this is a real problem. People are starting to be receptive to me. The final step before you even think about building is talk to 20 more people now after you've refined your, your sort of idea or your problem statement with these previous 40 conversations and ask them at the end of the call, would they be willing to pay to, for you to solve this problem? Even if it's 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, whatever it is. And I think at that point is when you will start to realize whether your idea has legs whether it is a vitamin or a painkiller, which is that if someone's like, yes, if you solve this for me, and you know, I think you've given me enough confidence that I will pay you an amount of money, which may not be extravagant, may not be huge, and is also not trivial. Like don't charge them like a couple of bucks, right? It just has to be meaningful enough where they have a little bit of skin in the game. And I think that's when you know that, okay, you are onto something, that you have a problem that you're solving. It is a real problem and important enough for your target audience. You've found your target audience and that they are willing to pay for it. I think, I think if you're able to do that, then you're setting yourself up for, for success. I think that is fantastic advice. And it can all be, given the technology and given if you've got a reasonable understanding of human behavior, you know, you can probably do this inside a week or two. Oh, Maybe yeah. It's longer than that. I mean, 20 sure. conversations lasting, what, 15, 20 minutes? And you're not pressuring them. You're talking about something that if it's relevant, they'll probably latch on to and be curious about. Right. What was your hit rate on that? I actually had a pretty good hit rate, uh, to be honest. Like, you know, and, and a good hit rate for me is I would send out about, a, uh, I think in a week, LinkedIn allows you to send 150, 150. cold, right? So 150. Uh, and, you know, I got, I got 15 conversations from it. And for me, that was good enough. That's a pretty decent number when you're reaching out without like, you know, offering anything uh, where there isn't necessarily something that the person on the other end has to gain. 
and they still get on a call with you, that's not bad. And I think the, the one thing that I would, would recommend, someone recommended this to me, is read this book called The Mom's Test. Um, the Mom's Test. Yeah, and it, because I think that helps you frame your questions in a way that, that you're able to mitigate some of the bias that you would have, mitigate some of the bias that your interviewee would have when, when giving responses, and to hopefully get responses and a conversation that is much more meaningful. Fantastic. Okay, this has been really interesting. Can we dig a little bit into the interview questions that you took into those initial conversations? What, what were you asking them about when you were trying to understand their problem? Yes. So, you know, I, I'll actually pull up a couple of questions that I had because I was trying to, this morning, refine them a little bit more because I, I did a few interviews last night. I was like, well, I think I need to tweak my questions a little bit more so that they, you know, I, I get more information out of these people. So uh, one is a lot of these questions are open-ended. So I'm not going to ask, is this a problem for you? Avoid asking yes or no questions, right? So in, in, my, in my case, for example, you know, I've been trying to have a lot of conversations with marketers, especially marketers who are focused on conversion rate optimization. And so the way I try and start that conversation is that, hey, you know, give a little bit of background that, you know, I've, I've trained a lot of folks with, you know, around sales demos in the past, worked with a lot of SDRs, but a lot of the time product marketers ask me to do stuff around demos. So I am trying to understand your world a little better and hence this call, right? And so that sets the context and makes it a little bit clear as to why you're coming in. Don't just jump in there and be like, okay, here, here are my set of questions. Then what I wanna get from them is, I wanna really understand their life, their problems, what motivates them. Like, you know, think of their emotional and social needs as well, as opposed to just their functional needs. That's what you're trying to get out of these conversations. So instead of saying, what does a product marketer do? Instead of that, I'd be like, okay, you know, Marcus, why don't you walk me through what does your day look like in your job today, right? And let them let them sort of extrapolate because what that does is it, it forces the interviewee to also think before giving a response as opposed to a binary response, which is easy, right? Yeah. And, then, and then keep sort of peeling the layers of, of the onion, right? Ask about, okay, so what are the KRAs for you and your team? How do you measure them? And if you succeed in hitting those KRAs, what does that mean for you as an individual, right? Uh, and what you're trying to understand is that, okay, if you solve this problem for them, does that, does that solution lead to that individual? Like Marcus getting a promotion, Marcus getting a raise, Marcus getting additional commission, right? Marcus looking good in front of his peers or colleagues. Because those are very, very important for you to know. Because at the end of the day, especially in my case, a lot of, a lot of times I've been guilty of this as well, is that when you're in B2B sales, you think of selling to the organization. What are the organizational benefits? But at the end of the day, the person who is going to buy what you're selling is an individual who has his own needs and aspirations, right? And the person who is going to use your product in B2B, some, a lot of the times there are two different personas. Is also the user also has their very specific needs and things that they want to fulfill. So when you're trying to sell to them or pitch to them or really understand what sort of you know motivates them, you really need to dig deep into sort of those emotional and social levers as well, as opposed to just the functional levers. So for STEM founders, it's really important to pay attention to this. Because uh, you'll... I'm one of those, yeah. Well, you, you'll often forget and that there is a human being the other end of this purchase and the human being makes the purchase decision. And the human being is the one catastrophizing all the things that will go wrong and all the recriminations and blame and consequences if you don't create clarity in their minds as to what's in it for them and why they will be certain to get the outcome that they intended. I'm really curious, how many tickets do you reckon you've saved yourself downstream and tying up your CS people because people would have had a product built by an engineer that, or 
someone who thought they knew best for the customer. I haven't really thought about that, right? Because right now we're we're at that stage where we really need to solve the problem first, get scale, and then get to that problem that, hey, you know, we have so many CS tickets that we need to solve. But I reckon, you know, I, I think just, I just think it's great practice because then even when you're building the product and not just design, but like actual experience of the product starts to reflect the workflows and the way of working of your target audience, which inherently will reduce to a better experience and hopefully, you know, fewer sort of tickets doesn't sort of, you know, completely take away from it. But I think people will be a lot more forgiving to you as a product and as a founder, if they see that, hey, you know what, but my core problem is being solved to a great degree. The product is not making me change my way of working or is not necessarily adding friction to my workflow, right? That becomes very important. And then when when you have this type of tribe of champions, perhaps, that start to identify and start being loyal to your product, I mean, that, that is your best go-to-market channel. There is no better channel than, you know, than just, you know, 10 champion customers are worth so much more than the 100 leads that come through your performance marketing channel, right? Because those 10 champions are like kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Even from an investor standpoint, like, you know, your CAC to LTV ratio is very attractive because you have that referral and loyalty loop. Your cost of sale is significantly lower. We, we know from the research that uh, I, I read years ago, the Referral Institute, they did 650,000 people on this uh, study. And what they found was a referral closed one in six instead of one in 20. Mm-hmm. The average initial order value is two and a half times greater than that of a cold new business. They repurchased three times as frequently and they referred four times as often. Now, that multiplier, it's pretty cool. So tell me this, in terms of how that positioned you when you did eventually go for funding, because obviously you were a terrible bet to begin with. (laughs) You weren't from the industry or whatever. You you didn't have this, that, and the other. And now you're facing all of this stuff. But you've gone through the gristmill. You've gone through you know, the, that hero's journey, uh, near peril, demise, panic, the world's falling on my head. How am I? Oh, Miracle made it through. So now you're at this point. You've finally found a CTO. You've got some good advisors around you. Now you're trying to go and raise funding. First question is, how do you avoid getting distracted from looking after your customer, which is the primary reason your business exists? and still manage to achieve the funding round? Yeah, so the first thing I will say is that I think as a founder, you need to have a conviction about whether you're going to raise money or not. There's no wrong answer, but you have to decide. And like me, if you decided that, hey, you know what, I'm going to raise funding, it, it cannot be a point-in-time activity, unfortunately. right? It has to be an activity that you do on a daily basis alongside all of your other day-to-day activities, right? Where you're building the product, you're trying to sell it, and you're also talking to investors to try and raise money. And that is what I did. It is not easy. It is doubly hard when you're a solo founder. It is triply hard when you're a solo founder without a team. And it is even more hard if you've never done it before, which is, you know, you check all the boxes with me here. So my approach really was... Initially, it was like I had a list of people or VCs that you read about in the papers all day, right? And you're like, oh, it would be great if I got Sequoia or Axel or any of these big guys uh, talking to me. First mistake I made is I went to the big guys first. Don't do that. Because fundraising is just like a performance. The more you practice, the better you get at it. And the higher your odds of getting funding. So what I should have done, and which I think a lot of other smarter founders do very well is just like when you go to grad school, you know, you have three tiers of colleges that you're like, that that you bucket them into. They're like, Oh, you know, the the number three are sure shots, but I'm not really like, that's just like, you know, if nothing else works out, I know that I'm going to get it here. Right. And then you kind of work your way up the list. That's what you you need to do uh, even when raising, right. Go talk to 
a lot of folks who you know will perhaps give you the money. And if they don't, you don't care. That's okay, right? But they're going to ask you a bunch of questions which you won't have answers to. And that is going to help you formulate the right answer when you go to subsequent investors. That I think is, is an so approach. You're failing that- deliberately in that first set of rounds so that you're getting the questions that you need. Yeah, but I don't think you're failing deliberately. Yeah, I don't think you're failing deliberately. It is just, it is the nature of fundraising. You as a founder have certain preconceived notions about your business, about your space, about your customers. And when you go in and talk to an outsider, in this case, an investor, they're going to ask you questions which you perhaps had not thought of. And so that means you go back to the drawing board, figure out answers to those questions, and then just keep improving with every subsequent conversation. But it's it's basically like the odds of, or, or like the stakes are lower, right? Because you're like, ah, it's okay, even if I don't get these guys. And so you're setting yourself up. So you're unattached. Yes, yes. So you, so you want to set yourself up so that when you get to those four or five or 10 folks where you're like, I would really love to have these folks on my cap table. By that time, you have at least refined your responses, figured out and crafted some of the answers that you would need, which you know that the odds of these people asking are higher. I think that's that's one approach. The second is when you do make your list, for me, I what I really wanted to do, what I who I really wanted is I wanted to work with people who had prior experience in my industry, who had worked in B2B SaaS, who had worked and had proven success in helping founders scale their businesses. And most importantly for me, uh, two more things were, which were really important to me. One was that their terms were really founder friendly, that it's not that, you know, in my, in my first or pre-seed round, I don't want to give up like 10, 20% of my company. I want to give up a very small section part of my company, which is fair to both parties because you're super early, you're trying to figure things out. And finally, especially at early stage, it's not just about the money, it is about what else can the VC offer you? Can they make the right introductions? Can they help you avoid mistakes that other founders in your place, in your space, in your industry have already made and you do not have to make them? Can they help you with with very important, very tactical things like hiring, compliance, legal? These things seem trivial, but they take up a lot of the founder's time. Especially when you're like, when you're really small, right? You can't afford a legal counsel. You can't afford like, here's my bookkeeper, my accountant, or my CFO. Like there are so many things that go into company building that startup founders don't think about. And and rightly so. You're like, oh my God, I have this great idea and, and I need to go do it. And when you start doing it, you realize that there's 20 other things that you need to do. So I think there's there's the concept of the right money, which is very important that I think founders should always think about. Don't just say yes to any money. Know what that money is going to do for you. So luckily for me, that was the one thing that I was very clear about, that I'm not, I'm not raising money just because I need the money. Uh, I'm ra- in my, for me, the reason I raised money, and I, didn't, I honestly did not need to, a few of the startups that I'd worked with had had good exits, so I could actually bootstrap, bootstrap SmartQ all the way till whenever I needed to. But my idea behind raising funding was I wanted to check myself. I wanted to ensure that can I can I pitch this to other people who have no vested interest in me and are willing to take that risk alongside me. And if they do, then that further validates what you're trying to do. It's not a sure shot, but it is it is a big uh, vote of confidence. That okay, you know, you are onto something that we believe in, either the idea or the founder or your approach. Right. Okay. And that's okay. So this was effectively about confirming your thesis that this is a viable proposition and worth continuing the pursuit. But each time you went to speak to found, uh, funders, uh, what you were doing was trying to iterate your understanding of the questions that they would ask so that by the time you went, uh, you actually tried to do a raise and really meant it, then you were getting the funding as fuel, not as oxygen. Perfectly put, yeah. Got it. So how can you tell the difference in the flirting and courtship stage 
between good money, bad money, and dumb money? In today's time, luckily, it is a lot easier to figure that out because I think the, the first thing and the easiest thing that a lot of founders can do when they are considering taking money from any VC is go reach out to founders of portfolio companies and have a conversation with them. What has been their experience with these VCs? And you would be, you'd be very surprised how honest and candid some of these founders are. Of course, everything's off the record and they're like, please don't, do not go and you know, tell people that I told you this about my investor. Because of course, everyone's in the game. Everyone like, you know, wants to raise that next round. And for better or for worse, this is a, a very close-knit community. So you can't, be, can't go around bad-mouthing people, but people will give you honest advice. And, and I, I was lucky enough to get that because I was going to raise money or take someone's money, which I thought was fine. But then as soon as I spoke to founders, people who had taken money from them were like, please don't take that money. Like take it only if you're sinking, right? I mean, it's it's really easy to to separate the wheat from the chaff in that case. Like that's dumb money. Like you don't want to touch that. Like I mean, if if founders are telling you don't take money from the people I took money from, no better validation that okay, move on. Okay, right? so that's definitely bad money. How do you identify the bad money that looks like good money? Ah, uh, that's a good one. How how do you do that? Yeah. So, oh, okay. Actually, I think I remembered an incident, and I think I think it it uh, it fits into this question, right? A lot of the times, you are attracted by the logo, right? You're like, oh my god, this this VC is such a storied VC, and they they do such great things, and you know, just having that that stamp of approval from this VC is going to do wonders for for my business. Perhaps it will. But a lot of the times it may actually backfire because what you don't know is what goes on behind the scenes. You don't know what sort of term sheet you're going to get, which essentially like, you know, really ties you down. Like it was very funny because I, I saw a term sheet that, that essentially dictated that, hey, you know, we'll give you money, this much money, but you cannot take more than this amount of salary for the next four years or whatever that, that term was if you're going to take our money. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. Like, to me, that didn't make sense because I was like, my salary or how much money I take out of the company should not depend on how much money the the VC is putting in or not. It should really depend on my revenue, right? How much am I making? And then that should dictate how much I pay myself or anybody else. One of the big challenges is uh, how do we build trust with other human beings? And I think a lot of what SmartQ is about is helping salespeople to build trust with their buyer. And I'm very curious how, based on the lessons that you've gleaned from building this and thinking deeply about the problem, uh, what have you learned? Can you elaborate a little bit more, like learned in terms of fundraising? Yeah, no, in in terms of building trust. Yeah, okay. So so that's a great question. So one of the first things that I did, even before I had raised money, right, being a solo founder, you know, I've said it that, you know, it's a very lonely journey. So for me, I realized that, you know, I needed to build a community, right? Folks who sort of trusted me, backed me, and were along the journey with me. So one of the first things that I did without necessarily any motive or ulterior sort of goal was to start a monthly newsletter, which really was, you know, me laying my heart out that, hey, you know what, this is what I'm doing and this is how I fucked up this month, like badly. And uh, like there, here are the 10 fuck ups and, and here's just the one half decent thing that happened. Having that level of honesty and, and trust and sending it out to people on a month to month basis. So I've been, I think when I pushed that newsletter out in March, it is, I think going to be newsletter number 14 or 15. I've pushed that out every month without fail to this group of people, which is, which is now grown because people are like, Hey, you know what, this is great. And, you know, when I have conversations with people who I think, you know, would be good to get on that list so that they know what I'm going through and that, you know, they can give me feedback. These people now literally know everything about the business that there is to know, whether it is my customers, whether it is I'm pivoting or not, like they knew I was going to pivot even before a lot of other people 
like out in the world knew, right? Even before I had put it out on paper or anything of the sort. So for me, like that was a very unintended, but I think very powerful way to build trust. Because now I know that these people, whether I need introductions, whether I need money, whether I need, you know, any sort of advice, whether, you know, I'm trying to hire people, a lot of these people will, without question, you know, be my champions. So that's how I ended up building a lot of trust. Again, this is really interesting. Uh, Daryl Sticker, one of my partners, specializes in trust building. He's developed a beautifully elegant formula, which is vulnerability times uncertainty equals perceived risk. And Mm. if you can't reduce or eliminate risk, people cannot trust you. And the key factor there is the uncertainty level. And the reason for that is because we know it's going to hurt. We just don't know for how long and for how badly. By constantly giving them that feedback through that vulnerability, what you did was you lowered their perceived risk because there was nothing hidden. It was all out in, uh, out from the shadows. And it just makes it easier for people to trust you when you are transparent. So again, another really important lesson as a founder to your own people is total transparency. One of the things that I see killing businesses from being able to grow and killing trust is the opacity of leadership and all this stuff done behind closed doors and uh, whispers. And it just creates rumors. Why would you create that condition? Divide and conquer is not a good look. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly agree because, and especially like in startup world, right? Whether it's your friends or families, what you see in the papers, what you read online is so different from the reality of 99% of founders who are on this journey. And as soon as this, as you say that, hey, you know, I'm a founder and I've raised funding, you know, all of these images of glamour and, you know, all of this money floating around start popping up in people's heads. But then as soon as you start having these conversations, start having very transparent and open conversations about your challenges, about, you know, while it may look great on the outside, internally as a solo founder, I'm going through so much shit. You have no idea you again become a human being, right? As opposed to smart cue the company. And which is very important. Like, I think it's just the same thing that, that you know, I tried to do when I'm, when I'm trying to like pitch or understand a prospect's problem. It's like, what is, what is your problem as a human being? And, and the same thing applies to me as Robin, the founder of SmartQ. How do you feel when you see your, uh, your investor's telephone number pop up on the screen? Oh, I'm not a problem at all. I'm I'm always glad. I'm lucky to have these set of investors who, if they're calling, I know something good is going to happen, as opposed to the latter, the, the fear that a lot of people have. I've been very lucky, very, very lucky that my investors and, and that was one of my one of my criteria. I'm like, I don't just want your money, I want your time. I want you to be accessible to me. And so there's like three or four or five people now across my my investors that I talk to almost on a monthly basis, even though I don't need to. And so I think while I have done a lot of things wrong over the past year and a half or, or more, the investors that I ended up getting, I'm really grateful that they said yes and that they, you know, I have them on board. So I'm a huge fan that your strengths are your development areas, your weaknesses are not. And uh, the smartest people gather people around them whose strengths make their weaknesses irrelevant. So when you are building and designing your team, I'm really curious to see how you started that design process and what you work back from. I actually applied the exact same logic when building my team as well, right? I mean, I was like, okay, so this is my background. You know, I've been in solution consulting. I've been in front of clients. What am I good at? Like, I'm good at being in front of clients, closing deals, building those relationships. What am I not good at? Like, I have an engineering degree. So, yes, I can understand code. And if you put a gun to my head, sure, perhaps I can write a little little code to save my life. But you wouldn't want me to write your code or be a CTO. So I was like, okay, I need someone technical to, to sort of, you know, help SmartQ really be set up from a strong baseline to build a product. What do I not know, right? I mean, I... I I'm not a marketer, 
right? And I've not scaled businesses from zero to one. And so the, 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 the GTM team that I put together, that was the whole idea. Like you are the experts. Yes, I, I know the business. I know the problem that I'm trying to solve and I'm there along the journey. But when you have to put things into action, that's where a lot of these people come in. And now I'm at that stage where I'm really grateful for this very small, but I think powerhouse of a team that is empowered and owns their functions. And we know that all of us are working towards a common goal, right? And what and, is and I that, love that job to be done? Because that's yes. the what, what's yes, the exactly. job to be done that you're all working towards and each one of them is playing a part to execute? Yeah, so, so you know, like I said, what when we pivoted, we decided that instead of selling to the sales function, we're going to sell to marketers. So right now, our North Star is that how can we help market marketers maximize their conversions and get the most bang for their buck with their MQLs, right, using SmartQ? That's our goal, that how do we make marketers more successful? That's what we're working towards. So whether it is building a feature in the product, our messaging, who are we trying to appeal to, all of that kind of flows in there. Okay. So I, I have a challenging question. I'm really curious how you're tackling this. Marketers very often have very low financial credibility with the finance department. How are you helping marketers develop the credibility they need so that when they put SmartQ in front of finance for the decision, then it's a no-brainer. It's a simple decision. I think the segment that we're selling to, which is like you know, SaaS companies, software companies, in these companies, I think marketing is an extremely crucial and you know, mm. indispensable part of the business. And as a result, Can I, I think- spend an unlimited budget? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone has unlimited budget, especially in startups. And given given the current uh, macroeconomic scenario, like whether it's sales or anybody, no one has, you know, uh, it, it, it was a joke. I, I think it was Henry Ford who said marketing is the only department that can overspend an unlimited budget. Um, <laughs> right, so right, they, right. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they're potentially a money pit. Uh, we yes. see vast yes. amounts of money thrown at marketing with really appalling conversion rates. I mean, yes. When you think about the conversion rate, taking people from the TAM onto yes. your marketing platform yes. and the number of shit leads that get sucked into that. And then the conversion rate, you know, one to 3% would be considered pretty good to move them from your marketing platform to your selling platform. And then a fraction of a percentage of those will move into your buying platform, which is where you really yes. want it to be because the mm -hmm. customer now aligns with you and says, look, I see you can help me solve my problem. Don't yes. fuck it up. That, that's Correct. basically what we're trying to get them to. But the majority of sales and marketing motion does everything to put them off. We're not asking the most bloody obvious question, which is, is there a better way? If you're failing 97% of the time, the most obvious question is, how do we either attract only the 3% yeah. or how do we make sure that 100% of our pipeline is made up of the 3%ers? Yes, yes, yes. Those seem to be more intelligent questions in my book. Yeah, and, and uh, all of those questions are spot on, right? And, and I think that is where I think we are, we are intending to make an impact. In our case, at the top of the funnel, that when you have a lead, when it goes from MQL to SQL, one, are there more leads that are going from MQL to SQL? Which is important, but not as important as, is that MQL really a high quality lead? When it actually flows down the, the funnel, the odds of it converting are significantly higher because you did better qualification up front. So whether it is by using your frameworks like Band or whatever, or by using products like SmartQ, where what you did is that, okay, you brought them in and now even before forcing them to sign up or give their emails or whatever it is, you've given them a taste of the product and how it solves their problem right at the top of the funnel. You are priming these customers or you're priming these leads to be real customers because you're, you're helping them solve their problem right at the beginning of the sales cycle. So I'm really curious about this. What's your investor measuring? And I'm really interested in terms of their attitudes and what they value most in pipeline? Yeah, so I think where we are at, right, at this pre-seed, very early revenue stage, 
the things that investors measure are very different from if we were a Series A and beyond company, right? At this point in time, really, the measurements are that, okay, what does your pipeline look like? Is there a similarity in your pipeline? Like, do they, is there a homogeneity in the, in the problem that folks in your pipeline have? Uh, yes or no. And it is important to, to, for that to lean towards a yes, right? And then, even if you have a handful of customers, can you, with confidence, say that these people will stay with you after the du duration of the contract? Because that says that the problem that you're solving is a real problem and a big enough problem that year on year, this customer is going to renew with you, right? So your LTV really is what they're trying to measure is that, you know, what would be the lifetime value of this customer? Because you're solving a real problem, so they'll stay with you for X number of years, right? At its core, I think that's what they're trying to see. There are the other things that, okay, you know, have you been able to build a team? How long has it has it been with you? All of those kind of things, but... Because you, you've just underpinned something that I fundamentally believe, which is that mm. you should be focused on when you're prospecting. You're prospecting for a customer who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. You're not prospecting for a customer who's going to help you hit quota this month. And um, the problem starts when your focus shifts from that to yeah. uh, from the former to the latter. Because, and th this is why I asked the question earlier on about how do you keep your focus as a founder on mm. what matters, because my experience is that when people stop worrying about, we solve the problem for this type of customer, and they start focusing on becoming a unicorn founder, yeah, um, the customer becomes a forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse. These salespeople are then pressurized and encouraged to behave piss poorly. Then management puts them under pressure because they're worried that they're all gonna get fired. And you start creating amygdala hijack on, at scale and you replicate stupidity at scale because then you start believing that BANT is a good process to apply to customers. It's a fine system internally. It's a shitty system to apply to customers because it's self-serving and putting customers under pressure to buy because you need to make a valuation target. That's not in the customer's best interest. And so ethics go out the window. Bias safety goes out the window. Um, and it turns into a pretty shitty place to work. So what are you doing to prepare for when you do raise, when, when you make it through this seed rate, uh, found, um, uh, time, what are you doing to prepare for when uh, you make it through this seed funding rate, uh, stage and you're moving into Series A? And they're now looking for the triple, triple, uh, double, double, double. They're looking for you to scale. Yeah. How, yeah so into that, uh, I think that's a great question because I think it it goes back to finding the right investors, right? Because you know, there's there's like this weird rule of thumb that you know, after you raise a, a seed round, within eighteen months you should ra raise a Series A. But why is that a why is that a rule of thumb? That should not be a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb should be that hey, are you, you know, uh, unit unit are you unit, unit economics positive? Are you actually is your ARPU more than what you're spending? Right, like you have to forget about the burn and all of that to when you're trying to raise. Right, and when should you? When will I be looking for a Series A? Is that when I'm starting to see that? Oh my God! Like we have really hit PMF, and we have really started to showcase value to customers. We have X number of customers or X percentage of our customers who are going to be with us for an extended period of time. Now, I know that I want to go after this type of customer. And there are, let's say, a million other companies like that. Now, to go to these million companies, I am going to need money, right? If I want to go after them as fast as I want to, right? So in my mind, that's when I will look at you know, raising a Series A, that I need the money not because I'm running out of money, but because I have a very clear and precise plan of who I want to go after and why, and what is that going to result in for my business, right? And then it's about finding the, the investor who, who buys into that vision. Again, there is no right or wrong, but there are investors who will be like, no, 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 no. You know, if, if you're waiting that long, then you are not going after the market early enough. 
And then there are the others who are like, okay, that's fine. As long as you have a very clear vision path and a GTM approach towards your market, we want to be on that ride with you. So I think uh, your choice of investor is also going to matter at whatever stage you're at. Robin, first of all, thank you so much. This has been an incredibly insightful uh, masterclass, actually, in how not to fuck up getting your investment and how to uh, to grow sustainably. So thank you. Marcus, thank you so much for having me. I think this was a great conversation. Having conversations like this with folks who've been in the industry for years uh, also helps me refine uh, my thought process because you definitely did throw in a, a few curveballs. So, so this was great for me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Delighted to have been of some help. Tell me this. Who is your ideal customer? Now that you're at this stage yeah. uh, of your business's evolution, I'm curious to see who you want to attract now. Yeah. So who we want to go after is growth and demand marketers at software companies right from early stage to Series BC, whatever it is, who are trying to go down the PLG or PLS approach, which is product-led growth or product-led sales approach. In our mind, the, the logic there is that these are the folks who are really trying to optimize on all levers. They're like, okay, our product needs to be great so that it pulls people in, gets them to the aha moment quickly, and then keeps them on our platform for the longest time. And to do that, let's now go out and find the right customer for our business? And what are the tools and assets that we need that will help us do that, right? And that's where SmartQ sort of comes in. I suspect there are, there are funds out there that actually have yeah. operations people active in their business. But one of the big frustrations, it has to be conversion at the moment because they're all under pressure to make a profit, collect cash, require more customers, the demands of investors and the funds are still the same as they were when they you know, set them up seven, eight years ago or whatever. And um, so there's still pressure there. Uh, the rules have changed, but the objectives haven't. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got to change your behavior. So mm-hmm. I'm really very curious to understand how you're adapting. Your customers uh, are changing. The market's changing. So, Marcus, you know, this actually takes us back to where we started the conversation, right? About the timing of the business, right? It's like, oh, we started the business in a time of perhaps great strife, you know, a lot of people going through a lot of tough times. But VCs or customers, what they're looking for today is efficiencies, right? Across the board, across their functions. Efficiencies or effectiveness? Because I think people tend to confuse the two and conflate them. Uh, I think in this case, they could be used interchangeably. But the idea being that if, in in our case, like if you can be more efficient in your marketing tools, in your sales funnel, in your conversion rate optimizations, then you're, you're, you're reducing your burn. You are optimizing your CAC to LTV ratios, right? And... That is great news for both businesses that, hey, you know, we're VC funded, but we need to like really optimize and and uh, get the most bang for our buck. And for VCs who are like, oh, you know what? All of our portfolio companies need to, you know, tighten their belts and do more with less, right? Money in this case, or less people or whatever it is, fewer tools, but tools that 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 solve a very specific problem and help you be more efficient or effective in what you're trying to achieve, right? So, so for us, I think SmartQ is, is primed and in the right spot to be able to sort of capture that sentiment in the market and help companies and VCs sort of, you know, move towards that notion of doing more with less and being more effective. Excellent. Okay. Well, Robin, we've come to time. How can people get hold of you? Yeah, so uh, you know uh, our websites get smartkey.com uh, and me personally, you can find me. I'm most active on LinkedIn and and Twitter, and my handle is Robin Singhvi, which is my first name last name on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you know, I have a I have a newsletter that I put out uh, to to folks who want to read it. It's on Substack, uh, and it's called SmartQ. So smartq.substack.com, and yeah, I mean from there you can you can extrapolate and find me everywhere else. Excellent, Robin Singhvi. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus.
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Feel free to leave us an honest review on whichever uh, podcast channel you use. And if you're looking for a coach who's going to kick your ass, cause you to think differently, stretch your beliefs, and do significantly better than you ever have done in the past, then drop me a line. It won't necessarily be pleasant, but we will have a bit of a laugh. And if I'm not the right person, you can just tell me, no, thank you. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.